You're listening to the Donor Growth Podcast, forward-looking conversations for those who believe that donor growth is possible. Every week, we'll explore a thought-provoking topic to help build deeper relationships with more of your donors. We are your hosts, Luis Diaz and Mike Dirksen. Now let's get into it. Luis, today we're going to talk about trust in fundraising. Mike, um, I trust that we're going to have a fun conversation about this today, yet again. When I saw the notes in the in the Google Doc that you and I share to to sort of brainstorm and plan for this podcast, it put a smile on my face because um, you talking about trust is so on brand for who I know you to be. I trust you to talk about trust. It, it's... <laughs> It, it's one of those things that, 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 that I know is super important to you. I've learned from you about this topic. Um, so uh, just an example of how trust works in the real world. That's so, I mean, I, I feel that it's, it's important. Um, maybe it's like my back my economist background um, where that type of thing is, um, you know, the, the, the subject of, some study, you know, not a tremendous amount, but like yeah. economics has evolved from being uh, very much about like we're all rational and we all just behave in our self-interest and things magically work into, well, let's look at do people trust each other? Does that impact what they do? Do you know, do they feel like organizations are legitimate? That's another kind of area. So right. um, I'm really into it and I'm excited that I kind of stumbled upon a model that we're going to talk about in a sec. Yeah, we're going to get into a model um, that uh, that McKinsey used to build to build their their giant consultancy and to help, you know, billion dollar brands and and Fortune 50 companies. Before we do that, talk to me a little bit about like why why is trust important in fundraising? How does trust impact fundraising? Okay, so I don't know that there is a study, and I'm sure there we can ask uh, somebody like Dr. Russell James that you know may be able to help us. But I feel like the connection between trust and fundraising results is pretty obvious. So in my mind, um, fundraising, especially transformational fundraising requires trust it's not the only thing it requires yeah. so again you know if you listen to this podcast the conclusion is not now i don't need to ask people i'll just be trustworthy and they'll start you know showering showering our mission with money um but i fe do feel like it's a requirement and it's also something that has been eroding um over the last decade or so yeah. um and we all feel this right trust in governments and nonprofits. And there's some surveys out there, um, the, like the Edelman Trust Bar Barometer, that have shown this, like numerically. Um, so I, you know, I, I feel it's it's pretty important and very impactful. The challenge mm -hmm. is how do we make that practical? And in that day-to-day -day fundraising grind, yeah. How? What do we do about it? Essentially, yeah. The the Edelman Trust Barometer has has sort of proven mathematically that trust institutions is down overall over the last few years. But even if all of us listening to this podcast right now just sort of do a gut check, I think we all know that in the last four to six years, it like we are 
all trusting institutions a little bit less. And this is on on either side of any issue. This is not necessarily a political, <clears throat> but like um, we've been through so much societal change and turmoil over the last few years that um, all of us have an opinion on government. All of us have an opinion on on corporations. Uh, unfortunately, nonprofits often get lumped in with with institutions. Um, they're seen as as one of the institutions in society. I think nonprofits stand on their own from government and business, but still people lump us in with institutions. And trust in nonprofits, according to the Edelman Trust Barometer, over the years has also eroded a little bit to the point where, depending, depending on the year, people scored business as being more effective and ethical than nonprofits. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, like back in 2015 or something, there was like a concerted effort by businesses, industry. Um, There's an association, there's a PR association that did a really strong push um, to build trust. And I think we're seeing those results now, which is a good thing. So mm-hmm. uh, businesses have built result, have been, have built trust, and um, you see that kind of in their social media presence and, and things like that. But nonprofits, uh, maybe once again, have been left behind. And I feel it's it's very important. It's trust is one of those things that not only helps the organization, it helps the person that's trusting, and it helps the entire system. Right. Yeah. So trust is super important because there's a correlation to fundraising effectiveness and fundraising results, how people feel about us, uh, including how our own staff feel about our organization. Everything is sort of based on trust. Staff retention. Yeah. So if you want to have a transformational organization, transformational revenue ops, getting get transformational gifts, trust is at the core of it. So if that's the case, who owns trust in a nonprofit? Well, that's the problem, right? I mean, I do see this as a very strategic issue. So, you know, I think it belongs at the very top. Um, As you and I talk a lot about, Mike, um, often that kind of gets forgotten. Um, And we kind of get into the grind of the day-to-day, getting out of the latest emergency, even at the, you know, leadership levels. But I do think it belongs up there as something that should be uh, you know, part of like a strategic plan and maybe delegated onto the VP of development yeah. um, or the chief development officer, you know, as the, you know, quote unquote owner of the external relations sometimes in nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think it needs to come from the top. Yeah. Let me ask you this and, and I'll try to... <laughs> Uh, not trying to put you on the spot here, but but let let me let me frame it in a way um, that I'm thinking about it in my head, because I can see us asking the question like, does this build trust for everything we do, right? And then somebody might say, well, um, we need money right now. We need to fundraise. We need to make this sound like an emergency. We need to bring a lot of urgency into this. We need to. And then somebody else saying, well. Does that build trust, though? Because donors know it's not a life or death situation right now. It's not that urgent. Uh, clearly, we're just trying to, you know, be gimmicky here to get somebody to 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 move and to act soon. And there's, I'm imagining that sort of debate happening inside of a shop, which is what's more important, which is like money today or like building trust in the long term, and also like 
even trying to quantify trust in the long term and somebody saying, oh, that doesn't build trust and somebody else being like, well, no, it does. Um, yeah. So maybe if I take a step back and to answer your question and observe that we do overall the nonprofits I've worked with and, and maybe you can share your experiences, do a really good job at developing trust with their top 10%, 5% yep. of donors. Um, and that's fantastic. Kudos to the profession. You know, we nailed this. Um, what has happened is that now that people can talk to each other, now that um, social media exists, now that charity watchdog sites exist for all their faults, um, people at all levels of the pyramid have the opportunity to evaluate parts that maybe, you know, before only the board would know about, right? Um, so that imperative to build trust has kind of extended to most everybody. Um, the result of that is that since we haven't paid attention to do that, you know, lots of our more modest donors are walking away, you know, are saying, you know, I, I need to take a step back for a moment. Um, you know, I, I just have too many questions. So in that balance between, you know, immediacy and I think what will help is thinking of the components of trust, which is what I would like a lot from the model that McKinsey developed. Um, it's not unlike other models that exist in the, in the, in the research, in the literature. Um, and I thought this was like very practical, like in a very like McKinsey way, they take the science and they kind of boil it down into something that's memorable. Yeah. Um, so, and one of those components that we're going to talk about is credibility. So urgency is a great thing when it's credible. I mean, that's my only answer. It's like, you know, how do you build trust? Well, mostly by being trustworthy. <laughs> you yeah. earn trust. Yeah. Like there's no trick to this, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't mean this to be like an inflammatory statement or anything, but but I often talk about like, um, two of the most trustworthy organizations being the NRA and Greenpeace. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I might have tremendous disagreements um, with the NRA, for example. Um, but we trust them to show up the way that they do. Everything the NRA does is on brand for who the NRA is. Um, and, and donors who like the NRA and love yeah. the NRA... They trust that organization to act the way that they do. Same for Greenpeace, right? Everything Greenpeace does is very on-brand and, and makes sense for a Greenpeace supporter. They trust Greenpeace to act the way that they do. Um, even yeah. if maybe the outside world sometimes or, or often would say that the NRA is like the most corrupt organization, and they might be, um, but to their supporters, they're, they're the most trustworthy organization. Yeah, and I think that goes to another component of trust. That's intimacy. So, an intimacy is: does, does the organization share my values? Um, do I feel like I know them, like personally as humans? Um, and it with their groups, with their respective groups, Greenpeace and the NRA, do have enormous amount of intimacy. Um, I, I, you know. I would imagine, and maybe folks that listen to this can can weigh in. Yeah. Um, but you also mentioned another important thing, and you mentioned the word brand. 
And this is why I feel like trust is like a high level strategic thing because it's a PR thing. It's a marketing thing. It's a fundraising thing. Um, and you need to have that constant mindset. And like, you know, when we dive into it in a second, it's, it goes from, are you on brand in your comms to, are you answering your phone calls? Yeah. Um, so it's pretty wide. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll get into this in a second here, but, but brand being not necessarily your visual brand or your visual identity or your fonts or your colors, brand being like how people feel about you, how people talk about you um, when you're not in the room. Your reputation. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's your reputation. All right. So the model um, that, that you've outlined is McKinsey's model, which is trust equals credibility times reliability times intimacy divided by self-orientation. So that's the formula. So you just want to imagine a formula in your head as we're speaking, trust equals, and then um, the, top, the, not, like, the top of the denominator is credibility times reliability times intimacy divided <laughs> by self-orientation, which means that credibility, reliability, and intimacy all get divided by self-orientation in the lens of self-orientation. So let's start. Yeah. And what the division, and sorry, Mike, what the division means is that things that are on the top, credibility, reliability, intimacy, the more you have them, the better. Yeah. Um, and the things that are on the bottom, like self-orientation, the more of that you have, it's worse for trust. So it affects trust in the other direction. Yeah. Credibility. Let's start there. <laughs> Um, the, the, the first, yeah, I mean, basically, sure. I mean, basically do they know that, you know, do, does the org, do the people in the org know their stuff? Um, you know, uh, you're trying to solve for the water problem in the world. You know, do you have experts yeah. on that, you know, or just a bunch of amateurs? Um, you're a higher education institution. Um, do you have rec, you know, are, are your professors credible? Um, I mean, it's it's as simple as that. I would say that maybe, Mike, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but maybe generalizing very broadly, lots of the established institutions, like we were saying before, um, are pretty credible. Yeah. Um, you know, have experts um, in that in that arena. Yeah, there's something that happens that when an organization has been around long enough, um, that uh, not not that anybody is too big to fail, but they've got a little bit more. Um, a little bit more authority on their side, even if they let's just assume that somebody is a like that somebody's been like an organization has been around for a long time. They're big, but they're completely ineffective. The fact that they've been around for so long and have gotten to a certain size starts to lend them a degree of credibility. It doesn't make them indestructible. Mm -hmm. Large institutions can fall overnight, but um, but there is there is something to that. Yeah. Oh. Well, that comment reminded me of also what got me thinking about this. Um, I was involved in an organization. Uh, um, I was, you know, I was a staff member at a nonprofit that was in a very similar situation to what you just mentioned. They had a tremendous record, a hundred years old, very established in the community. Financially, it was in deep trouble, as in we were sending our letters out and you know organizing our our donor dinners and we couldn't pay vendors like 
half of my job maybe mm. was um, answering vendor calls oh. and begging for them to that to postpone that. You know, yeah. um, that whole edifice was held up by trust. Yeah. That's really what opened my eyes to the importance of this kind of being on the, <laughs> the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, where a place can just keep going based on trust. Essentially, people will hold on to your debt. They will trust that you'll get better. Yeah, and a large part, again, of the CEO's job is to keep that trust going. You know, that could be like the only thing that's keeping an organization going. Yeah. Yeah, we, we share similar experiences. Um, one of my first jobs in, in fundraising was for an organization that had not been around for 100 years, had been around for 20 years, very established in a community. Um, and the uh, few weeks after I started, the board fired the CEO. For having had an affair with uh, with with a, with a staff member, and um, but, mm-hmm. but but the the board um, the organization at the time decided not to necessarily make that public, and so what happened was mm-hmm. donors go to worst case thinking. Um, the organization lets go of the CEO overnight, but doesn't say anything about it. Donors were calling. We were fielding calls of donors saying, "Did they embezzle money?" Did they like everybody thought this was a financial crime, and trust mm-hmm. overnight went down because the organization decided not to be open and honest about what had happened. Um, because mm-hmm. it was a faith-based organization, and they thought this would, you know, donors would look really poorly on this sort of behavior um, or whatever, and and it had the complete yeah. opposite effect, which is that the 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 moment you decided not to be credible because you wanted to protect something or 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 you didn't trust your donors to handle the truth whatever it is um trust went down and and yeah we were calling at the time a big ad spend with a local tv station big bill uh and we were calling them and saying listen we can't pay this (laughs) and the tv station said well you've been around for a long time we know you're you're good for it um the community loves you Mm -hmm. You need you need advertising now more than ever, so let's just give you another six months, uh, and like we'll help you turn yeah. around, and then you'll pay it back later. Um, but- yeah, I mean that that's just I mean I, it, it's so funny that we've we've both gone through similar experiences, you know, and I, and I've spoken with consultants that kind of specialize on turnaround situations like this, um, you know, and. What they've shared with me is that when you're in that situation, sometimes the only trust that's left is the trust that your board members can lend you, quote unquote, lend you. Um, So, you know, essentially it's, you know, sometimes it's just up to them to call up others and say, look, um, you know, and then they can be credible. You know, then it all kind of you kind of try to translate all of this equation that we're talking onto that person and say, look, do you yeah. trust me? Then, you know, you can trust this organization. Um, yeah. And before before you can take out that kind of a loan from somebody, um, like, will you lend me your credibility and your trust? You've you've got to have deposited that over the years. Um, so mm-hmm. you can't just that can't be a a fail safe for you because you got to be depositing trust as you go along because one day you may need to make a withdrawal. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So again, you know, what department in an organization has that long-term view? You know, I, I we, we talked about uh, in a, in an episode that's 
going to be released or has been released when 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 this one airs, um, we talked about the role of the CEO. And I think this type of long-term view, like we're doing things not because it's going to help us this quarter or this fiscal year, but because it's building that trust bank deposit. Yeah. Okay. All right. So that's the first um, one, which is credibility. So credibility. Yeah. Yep. The next one is reliability. So how is reliability different from credibility? Okay. Credibility is kind of expertise. Does this person know their stuff? Um, do I trust that they have enough knowledge and this is credentials? Um, you know, you can prove credibility a number of ways. Reliability speaks more to the character. And, you know, it's a character is a, something that applies to people, but also to organizations. You know, do they do what they say they're going to do? If they say um, next fall, this is going to happen. This gala, um, we're going to send the annual fund report. Um, the I'm sorry, the annual report. Um, we're going to start this program. Do things happen, right? So uh, Tesla, you know, probably super credible, reliable, you know, so so. Um, so I think what this show, you know, because they, I mean, and for those who aren't familiar, they like for a while, they were promising that they'd have this many cars and that they would be this far along next year. And it never happened. Um, yeah. that undermines trust. So I think this goes to show that you don't need to have all of the elements that we're going to, that we're talking about in this formula. Um, and the, you know, you can be really strong in one area, maybe to compensate in another. Right. Yeah. Um, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think we all have friends who always show up late for everything or who say they're going to do something and then they don't. And uh, we still love them. Um, but we we're, we don't consider them the most reliable person. They're not the person we're going to call in an emergency. Uh, they might not be the person that we're going to trust to take care of our pets while we go on travels or something. Um, because Totally. Gonna... But they may be a car expert. And if you're yeah. buying a car, you're calling this person yeah. because, you know, you trust them. In that area. So, you know, again, trust, probably context specific um, and an external thing. It's how people see you, right. uh, not necessarily how you see yourself. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think and we're going to have some fun um, after we go through these steps and say, uh, kind of see how nonprofits actually work. But sometimes credibility, we think we are super credible. But is it do people on the outside yeah. um, trust that? knowledge yeah and and the reliability piece is is this is interesting to me because nonprofits don't think about this in every facet of the organization um for example you um if, if you have if you have a person who who sort of is in charge of the front desk so to so to speak depending on on what kind of nonprofit you run right that person is a director of first impressions it's often mm -hmm. also the person who picks up the phone call. It's often the person who routes sometimes phone calls to the, to the right departments, whatever it is. Um, yeah. Huge, huge amount of responsibility for that person in terms of building reliability, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. if a phone call goes well, unanswered, that might be just like, it may have been just a busy day and I didn't get to it and it gets forgotten. Donors notice that kind of yeah. thing. Oh my goodness. And that 
for those who are in large organizations that like routing hell. Oh, yes, I'll transfer you to the appropriate department. And then you get another voicemail and you get bumped back to the yeah. front, you know, to that, to that director of first impressions. And then you say, but look, I'm trying to make a gift. And they're like, oh, you know, and sometimes they'll like say, I don't know who you should talk to. <laughs> Which is like, oh, my goodness, do these people know what they're doing? Yeah. Um, all right. So the next one is that was credibility. And um, uh, first one was credibility reliability. times reliability. The last one times intimacy before we get into self-orientation. So intimacy is the last multiplier in, at the top. Um, what is intimacy? Yep. So I like this one a lot because I, I joked when I published this on LinkedIn that nonprofits have an intimacy problem. So um, – Typically, both on the reliability side and on the intimacy side, um, it falls on the development officers to try to make up for the rest of the organization that's not maybe not as reliable for certain constituents mm -hmm. um, or as intimate. So intimate intimacy is do I feel like I know um, this person, this organization, do they share my world values? Um, yeah. Do I feel connected to them? Um, so like McKinsey consultants, if they're working in the automotive industry, they'll try, you know, they'll try to dress and talk like people in the automotive industry. If, if But if they're talking, if they're in finance, they'll try to dress and talk like people who are in finance. And that's that this intimacy piece, right? It's why we yeah. take people out to dinner. Um, there's nothing in the dinner that makes GIF happen, but you're building intimacy. Yeah. Every um, major, you know, it's why social media, yeah, and, and video works. Sorry, Nick. Every major gift officer right now is listening to this advice and saying, "Wait, I should be credible and reliable, but also I should dress up to go golfing and then dress down to go see somebody at their shop." Uh, like, isn't that inauthentic? Uh, but what <laughs> what um, what we're saying is the intimacy piece is is showing people the common ground. Here's the things that we share. Right, um, and we can do that in our organizational true self, and also in our personal true self. Well, I mean, of course. Yeah. So, um, uh, Mike, you let the cat out of the bag. The Donor Growth Podcast is selling um, all types of costumes <laughs> and makeup kits for the practicing fundraiser. Yeah. So please contact us immediately. Um, you know, all of this is. Again, tr the way to earn trust is by being trustworthy. Yep. Um, these, you're tr we're trying to break it down to make it more uh, achievable and understandable. Yeah. But obviously, you know, don't don't dress up uh, <laughs> in, in a way that's inauthentic. Um, it's not a gimmick. And yeah. again, if you try to do it in a gimmicky way, you're probably undermining your credibility. Yeah, exactly. uh, Which is another component. So. Uh, Use your best judgment. <laughs> so intimacy is just like like do do donors feel like they know you, right? Like do they do they feel like they know who you are? Do they feel like they know how you think? Um, are there some shared? Can they relate to you? Yeah, can they relate to you? All right. So um, we've got credibility, reliability, and intimacy. Let's say we we're working on those three. We've got them down. Now this entire thing gets divided by self orientation. And self-orientation, <laughs> to be clear, it's not it's not self-orientation how the donor sees themselves, right? What does self-orientation mm -hmm. mean? 
It means how the donor sees you, how the donor sees the organization. So, and, and divided in this formula, everything that's under the division means that that's a bad thing. It undermines trust. So, um, if they perceive you to be very self-oriented, that means that you're only caring about yourself and your own needs rather than them and their needs. Um, that will, you know, undermine trust. If you go to a doctor and you think that they're not really treating you because of what your needs are, but because of what they're getting paid, right. um, then you're going to stop trusting them. You know, if you go to a professor and you think that they're only teaching this thing because um, they're getting paid by the textbook companies, then you feel that they're more self-oriented. That does not mean that we, again, like, you know, this, this whole, um, let's put the donor on a, on a pedestal and it's all about them, you know, and, it, you know, it can be taken to extremes yeah. too. So people are understanding the doctor needs to make money. The professor needs to make money. It's a job. We're all in our jobs. We're trying to make the, the world better. But um, many donors feel like we just show up for money. Yeah. That's self-orientation. Yeah. Yeah, and an important distinction that, that you started making there, which is that sometimes the critique is, oh, you're just like, yeah, putting donors on a pedestal and they have all the power and like you're just treating them the way that they want to be treated and you just roll out the red carpet for them and whatever they say goes. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the disposition that the organization has. Are you coming across as only wanting to extract something from the donor to achieve your own goals? Or are you coming across as genuinely being interested in solving problems together with the donor and with your community of supporters and helping them achieve yeah. some of their philanthropic goals, right? Yeah. And I think there's an implication to that, which is not all donors will be appropriate or be of good fit, a good match for this. So if you... You know, that means that if you don't want to be self-oriented, you know, that means that you're going to have to find donors where their orientation, you know, what they want to achieve in the world kind of matches what you want to achieve. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel that that's a common pitfall, too, where we, we start seeing things in a very either or black and white way, um, where it's kind of either all about us or all about them. You know, it's a partnership and you need to find the right partners. All right. So that's the formula. Trust equals credibility times reliability times intimacy divided by self-orientation. Just to show you how powerful the self-orientation bit is, the, the, the bottom denominator. If the top, if credibility times reliability times intimacy, let's say you're at 100 there. You've nailed them all. Um, if donors perceive your self-orientation to be not very self-interested, it's a very low, let's say it's a 1%, then you get to retain your perfect score of 100. 100 divided by 1 is 100. Now, let's say donors perceive that to be a 2. All of a sudden, right, you drop in half. 100 divided by 2 is 50. So it's exponential, the effect that the, that the, the, the perceived self-orientation has. Yeah. And I love this. I love, I hadn't thought of it this way. And, you know, the way I see these formulas also, it's, it's kind of directional. I mean, it's not really a formula. People are not walking around with a calculator in, yeah. this, in their heads, but the lesson is things on the top are good. Things on the bottom are bad. 
things on the top can weigh, uh, can compensate for each other. Yeah. Credibility, reliability, intimacy. Um, you can have, you know, if you don't have so much of one thing um, and you can't because of some structural reason, um, maybe you can uh, dig into the other two things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely uh, like wholly unscientific scorecard. Uh, it's just kind of a framework to think about this. Um, exactly. Okay, I, I want to get into into more examples. Fun part. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, Mike, let's let's have some fun. So, um, in, in the spirit of wholly unscientific, um, the nonprofit sector as a whole, and I was reminded very recently that people have very different experiences and images of what nonprofit sector means. Okay. So, um, please, everybody, you know, just bear with our own biases. Um, we, it, Mike, um, has a different experience. I have a different experience. You will have a different experience. Um, but number one, credibility. How do we think nonprofits rank um, in the credibility piece? Is it possible to even generalize? Um, you go first. So in my own experience and my own point of view, I think out of all of these, um, I think credibility is one of the areas nonprofits are stronger in. Um, mm -hmm. Now, that depends on the institution, but but. But by and large, I, I think I think this is one of the areas that that, that the sector is pretty strong in. Um, there's others we're going to get to where I think like we need to like massive improvements. But in the credibility piece, we do have a fair amount of subject matter experts, um, and I think we're very fortunate to have that because some of them could get a, paid a lot more in the private sector. Um, but the people, the subject matter experts that the nonprofits tend to attract. Are people who are not necessarily oriented toward um, financial sort of like like they'll they'll they still need to get paid well. I hundred percent believe that you should pay the experts an expert salary, um, but they tend to be people who have a very very deep passion for the kind of work that they get to do, and so the innovation that comes in the sector usually comes from those people. So I, I think credibility we're scoring okay, but but I'd like to hear your thoughts. I agree with you, especially um, since we're fortunate that um, in Canada and the U.S., most healthcare systems, many healthcare systems, many universities, like highly respected, credible institutions are nonprofits, right? Yeah. That's not the case everywhere in the world. Um, but I, what I would um, add to that is that in recent times, and by times probably decade, um, or so, um, they, they're, the, it's, um, we're much more exposed. So nonprofits who have experts, those experts are much more exposed and open to questioning by the general public. And we've seen that during the pandemic, um, people yeah. doing their own analysis yeah. of what the experts were saying. And on the expert side, they often come across as being, um, very black or white, um, and not letting people into the thought process and just knowing that science is a process. It's yeah. not something that is not another religion that, you know, that has absolute truths. Um, and, uh, people, you know, by and large, uh, I, I think are reacting to that. Yeah. Um, you know, wanting to do their own analysis. So I, I would say that's, a, you know, a, a plus is, is credibility is strong in the sector, but we're evolving in a direction where 
um, nonprofits need to be more open about the kind of behind the scenes, kind of the sausage making. Right. Yeah. We've talked about building in public lots on this podcast. Um, this is, this is mm -hmm. one of those areas. Um, during the pandemic, you had people who vehemently disagreed with each other and both, both sides, so to speak, both parties were following the science, right? Both would say mm -hmm. like, well, I follow the science because you had scientists who disagreed with each other because like you exactly. mentioned, science isn't always black and white, especially if it's an evolving sort of thing that people are still studying, still getting to know, still understanding how it works. And so yeah. the, the way to build credibility is not to say, we've done research, here's what it says, here's what it is. It is rather to be open with people about here's what we've looked at. Um, here's why we chose this methodology. Here's what we're seeing. Here's what we think that means. However, uh, you know, we're going to have to keep looking at this thing. Um, and just like building in public as much as possible and involving different perspectives even, right? Cause we need, and this is, this is, I think, this is a topic for a whole other podcast. I think we've lost the ability to disagree well. And we're so scared mm -hmm. of critique. We're so scared of yeah. people who might think differently than us. But I would argue, like, if you as a nonprofit, if you're involved in research or if you have subject matter experts, you should welcome an opposing view because it might make your argument stronger, right? Like, if you can successfully sort of dissect an opposing view, you get more confident in, in the expertise that you've developed. Or it might yeah. reveal that you have a blind spot. So we should welcome opposing views um, because it, it will overall make us better. Yeah. Um, and I would disagree, Mike, with the fact that the statement that we've lost the ability to disagree, I just think that disagreements are much more frequent and public now than they used to be. So probably we never had the ability, even though we kind of prided ourselves in our ability to debate, um, you know, the, the debate that's going on right now is pretty wild. So it just requires more and better debate skills. And, you know, my dad is a professor. Um, he's not used to being questioned. I mean, it, it's just not the world that existed. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, 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 I, you know, I almost feel like that should be, you know, like a training Yeah. for experts. Yeah. All right, let's move on to reliability. This is, yeah, exactly. We, we talked about this a little bit, right? Your director of first impressions. I love that. Um, are you perceived as saying what you, uh, of doing what you said you would? Um, are you, if, if you promise something, does it happen? Um, can people count on you? Uh, and that gets undermined by the smallest things. Yeah. You know, how fast do you respond to your emails? Like, who's looking at that? How quickly do you send your acknowledgments? Who's looking at that? I've seen like entire analysis assessments of donor relations. Um, and probably the first thing that builds trust in, in that process is how quickly you can get to do it. And, you know, in a kind of human way, right? Yeah. Um, people discount the, the automated emails. Um, so that's reliability. Um, I, I think there's a lot to work to do there. I, I don't know if you agree. Yeah. And part of that is that we have defined the donor experience as being a very certain thing, which is that when they make the gift, what is that experience like? And we haven't 
we don't actually look at the you know we don't look at at customer experience donor experience whatever you want to call it we don't look at it as a whole like what happens if they call the office what happens if they come for a visit what happens if they tell a friend about it and then the friend makes a donation in the notes section says oh i heard about you from so and so or oh i'm making a donation in the memory of this person and then that person might get that postcard, but the original donor was never told, hey, we'll send that person the postcard. Thank you. There's so many little things that we don't look at it as a whole. And mm -hmm. it's just not a priority. So I agree with you. I, I think in the reliability piece, there's huge room for improvement uh, as a sector. Um, and I'm not saying, you know, this is not like a, a sort of a a self-hating, oh, we're so bad in the nonprofit sector. Look at how good the for-profit sector is. Because I've been on a lot of phone calls in the for-profit with, with for-profit companies where I walked away super frustrated and, and vowed to never do business with that brand again, right? Like this happens mm -hmm. everywhere. Um, but that's not an excuse not to get better. Yeah, I mean, exactly. It's a matter of improvement. Um, I think it's trust if anything, is more important in nonprofits because how much does Coca-Cola lose if you walk away from the vending machine? You know, a couple of bucks. Um, how much do we lose if a donor walks away? Well, you know, it could have been a major gift. You know, in three years, five yeah. years, that could have been a legacy donor, major gift donor. Um, so our results just have that incredible peak. Sure. Uh, that doesn't exist in kind of more retail industries. Yeah. Also, like I can, I can, you know, I can tell myself every time I have a bad experience, I'm never flying United again. Um, but the next time I have to fly somewhere, if United has a better connection and they have the better price, I'm totally willing to fly United again <laughs> because I'm getting like a tangible physical sort of thing out of it. In nonprofit world, mm -hmm. most of the time it doesn't happen. What you get out of it is the story you get to tell yourself about the kind of person you are and about your values and mm -hmm. about. And so nobody is in any way like having to make you like give you a gift, right? They, um, they can express their values mm -hmm. in the world in other ways. So it's even more important, um, that we honor the people who, who show up for us in that way. Exactly. So you just, talked about expressing values how did people express values by uh, booking airbnbs in ukraine that was exactly that yeah. you know that was about that story um why didn't they perhaps um support other nonprofits? well obviously kind of maybe a visibility type of thing but um you know maybe trust has something to do with that too um uh, they understood very clearly and uh, you know the the what you, what was happening you know what was what you're getting versus the probably more effective immensely complex issue of helping refugees yeah um or providing other types of assistance mm, yeah it's you know it's complicated but i think trust gives us like a, a good way to think about these things yep absolutely uh so, now what 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 a, a bit of a side note here uh <laughs> Imagine if a nonprofit had reached out to Airbnb, and I'm sure they did. I'm not saying they didn't, and said, hey, this thing is happening. I'm sure you've noticed it. Do you think there's some sort of corporate partnership we can strike here? Where for every person that somebody donates um, an Airbnb in the Ukraine, um, you don't, you make a gift to help a refugee and like we'll make a thing out of it so that that's part of the, the checkout process 
um, when you're when you're doing this thing, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is giving an Airbnb to somebody in Ukraine philanthropy? It's not up, up to us to decide. Um, donors decided that it was. So it would have been up to us to tell a better story or to find a way to be part of that story. Um, intimacy. Sc- score I like that. Score- Storytel- yeah. I think, yeah, I think storytelling goes into intimacy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the intimacy piece. It's about, is that a story that I feel I can be a part of? Um, the Airbnb was a story that felt very intimate. Many of us have booked Airbnbs, we understand it. Um, It's maybe has like a tech uh, Silicon Valley ish uh, value that many people shared, you know, Um, and 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 that's kind of you know what intimacy is about. It's uh, so you know, do I do I feel that connection? Do we have intimacy in the nonprofit sector? Um, I see this in my experience again as being very too. Um, too two sided. So where we have development officers um, just doing everything they possibly can to build that intimacy, but kind of on you know because the organization as a as a whole is you know yeah. not very intimate. Yeah, and you know very it's it's hard for donors to feel connected to it. Yeah, I agree with you. I I would score fairly low uh, the sector as a whole some organizations are doing this really well but i also think it gets harder the bigger you get now the the advantage that small shops have is that they can be super intimate and i think as you get larger um you you got the executive team you got the management team um you're starting to have all these layers of bureaucracy everybody gets more risk averse as you go not realizing that the most risky thing is to not be open to external input. Um, so yeah, every close time, down. Yeah. The, your example, your, exactly your example at the beginning of the episode, right? Yeah. Just close down. Let's not tell people about things. Yeah. Don't tell. Like try to control it. Uh, why would you tell people about this? It 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 just opens up a can of worms. Um, that kind of thinking is c- comes a bit out of a scarcity mindset. Um, a bit out of we need a mindset. We need to try to control this. Uh, we need to protect something. It's very uh, you're very afraid of any kind of risk or external sort of um, input or change that might have to force you to react. Um, so all of those things. Just think about those things in a relationship. If somebody starts acting that way in a relationship, that is a less intimate relationship. That's a person that is closing down a little bit. Right, they're putting up their walls a little bit. Yeah. All of a sudden, you feel like, "Hey, we're not as connected as we used to be." What happened? Yeah. So again, for those who are going to react against that, the reason is not because we want to be all warm and fuzzy, and or because we're not important enough to be, you know, to have that distance. Is because it impacts trust, and it can be done in a way that um, is is true to your values. Yeah. You know, so this isn't about, you know, pretending to like people that you don't like, you know, or going to people's bar mitzvahs um, necessarily. Yeah. Um, Mike, um, this is a fantastic conversation, but um, I think we need to actually stop it and maybe ask people to leave us a comment with what they think. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, uh, maybe Lewis will spend 30 seconds talking about self-orientation. We forgot to score the, the sector on self-orientation. Um, <sighs> I'll, I'll quickly go first. Um, 
I think this is the largest area of growth. Uh, I think it's the easiest way that we can build trust is actually to to decrease the perceived self-orientation that donors think that we as an organization have. It's mostly about changing the words we use. Changing the words we use is free. So um, why wouldn't we try to work at this? I'm I'm with you. Um, you can do things to make donors feel like you care about them. I mean, essentially, and you know, it can be the words, it can be stewardship and donor relations, um, which we should probably have an episode about. Um, and um, you know, kind of try to get. You know, probably if you're a frontline fundraiser, you're hearing this all the time. If you talk to your kind of mass donors, yeah. which is um, you only show up for the money, try to get that message up. Um, you know, there's probably something in it. Yeah. So uh, it's as simple as that. Well, that wraps up today. Uh, we publish once a week. Hopefully, that gives you a sense of reliability that you know that every every Thursday you can expect a new episode of the Donor Growth Podcast. This is an audio medium, which apparently is supposed to be the most intimate medium. I uh, I don't know if that's true, but um, that is maybe our way of increasing intimacy. Um, in terms of, you know, credibility, uh, Lewis is just an expert in annual fund development. He started the, the, the donor, uh, growth project, uh, one of the largest growing sort of fundraising groups I've seen, um, over 1500 members and growing. So, um, I, you know, we've got the subject matter expert in the room and self orientation. I hope that you know that we're showing up to serve you. Um, we hope that, that this helps you grow deeper relationships with more of your donors. A lot of this podcast focuses a little bit on sort of the business case for doing this sort of stuff and also on the back-end business of organizing your fundraising operations to serve donor growth. If you have any questions, Luis Diaz on LinkedIn, Mike Dirksen on LinkedIn, and we'll see you again next Thursday. Thank you for listening to the Donor Growth Podcast, brought to you by the Donor Participation Project and BuildGood.com. If you found today's episode helpful, please help us by sharing it with a friend, posting about it on LinkedIn, or giving it a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, remember that donor growth is possible.